it's very common in translation industry. We don't have domain-specific translation memories to fine-tune a generic machine translation system. Continue to use AI to improve content production efficiency and promote the industrialization of the online video industry. Highlighting the kind of crossover or why exactly language service providers might be interested in virtual data room space. And welcome everyone to Slater Pot episode 130. Hello there, Esther. Hey, Florian. How are you doing? I'm okay. Today we have a very interesting uh, guest, uh, Yasmin Muslim, machine translation researcher at the ADAPT Center in Dublin. And we're going to talk about a really, really interesting topic. They published a paper on it, like basically using AI to generate reference text to train machine translation in domain. So niche domain, lack of reference text, generate a ton of um, reference, like custom reference text, and then training the MT with it. Seems like a big deal to me. That's why I want to have Yasmin on the podcast. She could tell us a lot more about that and excited to uh, talk to her. Before that, we're going to be talking a little bit about machine dubbing in real life. So we uh, found a real life example of uh, application for machine dubbing. Then you're going to tell us a bit more about TransPerfect's recent acquisition or most recent acquisition. And we're going to talk about transcription and captioning, which is something that's popping up more and more on our radar and we cover quite actively now because it's also kind of converging with the broader uh, translation localization industry as we see it with media localization. You know, we spoke about it a couple of times when we published our video localization report. And it's an interesting, interesting space. Well, I'm from the tech side as well, I think, right, with sort of transcription coming first in a lot of the workflows. Correct. So, but first let's talk about IQI. I don't know what tone it is in Chinese, but IQI. Uh, so they're using, it's a streamer, it's a Chinese streamer, and they're using machine dubbing as told by the CEO, Yu Gong. Um, so they had an analyst call, which we dug out from the filings and uh, so ITE said that there are, and let me quote now. First, they said tech is fundamental to support our development. We continue to use AI to improve content production efficiency and promote the industrialization of online video industry, of the online video industry. And then they're saying that their proprietary AI dubbing technology has now been deployed in the first quarter of 2022. And it's widely used in their film offerings. Now, we did duck deep and we did uh, take out subscriptions and looked at, uh, at a lot of the, the shows. Now, we didn't find that it was widely used in their film offerings. I think we found uh, a couple of Thai dramas that were uh, dubbed into Vietnamese using uh, machine dubbing. Uh, so I couldn't judge the quality because, you know, my uh, Vietnamese is kind of rusty. <laughs> Vietnamese is like one of the hardest languages to learn, like for, I guess, a Westerner along, like maybe Cantonese. It's, it's just super hard. Um, so they um, they said they're using, so I, I said that they're using the dubbing in their overseas business. For example, now I'm quoting the CEO, when, they launched, uh, when we launched a few films in Thailand using IT dubbing that received a very strong user feedback and generated strong revenue performance. So he says that AI dubbing is effective in optimizing costs. Yeah, 
of course, and driving revenues for, in their words, long tail content. So not the sort of premium, premium stuff. I did watch like 15 minutes of the, uh, the tide, the, the tide drama. Uh, it's like, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not premium content. Is it like soap operas? Yeah, yeah soap operas completely like, you know, like fancy cars and then like, you know, uh, beautiful people in fancy cars and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, now I, I don't want to make this a huge deal, but I think it is a biggish deal that there is now machine dubbing being used in live settings and like in real life settings. Yes. It's, you know, what they say is long tail content, but still, I mean, they went ahead and approved it and they're seeing apparently. Uh, even if you strip out all of the uh, the kind of PR speak, there there is a, apparently optimization of costs and and they're help and they're seeing you know revenues going up because if people can access it, um, that I mean if you're in Vietnam and you don't speak Thai, which I would assume ninety nine point nine percent of uh, Vietnamese wouldn't speak Thai, so they can at least watch this and it might not be great, but at least you can kind of follow what, what's going on in the screen. So. Interesting development, and um, you know, I'm curious to see what's uh, how does this going to develop going forward. Probably Asia will be one of the early adopters. I mean, is already an early adopter, and this is going to likely blaze the trail here. Do you think doing so machine dubbing for the long tail content will eventually sort of help to be able to do AI or machine dubbing for more premium content, a content higher up the food chain? Just because of having sort of the practice and training content potentially. I think I doubt it in the next decade. Um, I just wonder how the translation, I mean, it's the raw, even the translation quality, the cultural appropriateness of, you know, that. But like with some kind of post edit after or. And maybe some light post edit or something or some post edit, but yeah, I mean, but you, you're not going to pour, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars into content and then like you're running some like $20 like AI dubbing thing on top of that, I, I doubt for like a major show. So yeah, it's probably going to just be as an additional option to make it more accessible to people that know this is not dubbed by professionals. Yeah, but still want to watch it for, for whatever reason. Yeah. And it's, you know, maybe in markets where people are uh, not used to subtitles or not super fast readers in general, et cetera. I, I, I don't see this breaking through anytime soon in, um, in like very mature markets for premium content. Uh, but you know, no, actually I don't think I'm wrong. I think that I'm right here for the next couple of years, four or five years. All right, let's do a full 180 and head to uh, your beautiful town of London where Transperfect acquired a virtual data room company called Sterling. Tell us more. Yeah, so this is uh, news out this week from Transperfect, um, based in the US, that acquired a London, UK-based virtual data room technology company, or VDR uh, technology company, called Sterling Technology. Uh, it was a competitive bidding process, so Transperfect had been invited to participate, and uh, the company was you know, looking to, to find a, a buyer. Um, and... Uh, Phil Shaw told us, uh, Transperfect CEO told us that um, this is uh, one step in their um, you know, goal of kind of proactively addressing the VDR market. I mean, they do already have solutions uh, for VDR. Um, I think they've got proprietary technology called Transcend and did another acquisition in the space back in 
uh, I think more than a decade or 15 years ago now. Um, but I think what's interesting um, in this acquisition um, is just sort of the, is highlighting the kind of crossover or, or why exactly language service providers might be interested in virtual data room space, or, which is not necessarily a natural area of expansion, you would think, for, for language services. But actually, when you start digging into it, there has been a really long history of language service providers with relationships to um, virtual data rooms and particularly in the world of kind of legal and financial printing. Um, so you have, I think we even did a story back on, uh, back in sort of 2016, kind of highlighting uh, the, the potential demand um, and opportunity to be found in that space. Um, so you have you know, companies like uh, Topan uh, Digital, you know, the, the language service provider, um, their sort of, I suppose, sister company, Topan Merrill, has a whole host of um, VDR solutions as part of their financial legal printing. And then, you know, back in the day, you had Donnelly that was also owned by a financial printer that also had uh, VDR solutions. I think at some point, CLS and Lionbridge had some kind of partnership with VDR solutions. I mean, the logic here really is that your clients and LSP's clients might well be using VDR solutions um, a lot. So you've got you know, in the advisory, finance and legal space, um, so the most common users of, of VDR for things like corporate transactions, which obviously require this super secure uh, room or super secure sort of environment to collaborate, to exchange documentation and comments um, on things like deal making processes. Uh, but also, you know, wider fields like in the corporate space, life sciences, real estate, um, and if you think about it, you know, a lot of deals that happen, if you think about even this um, acquisition, it happened across a, across a border, you know, albeit uh, two countries, US and UK speaking roughly the same language. Um, but in other situations, when you're, um, you know, when you're conducting M&A or going through that process of bidding for a company, uh, you might be having to deal with um, people on the other side of the world who don't necessarily speak speak your language um but yeah just to to finish off um i mean it's it's not a huge acquisition in, in in sort of probably monetary terms in the sense of revenues likely being under um around uh, 12 million us dollars that's just based on uk re regulatory filings um and then also yeah phil shaw was saying it's actually a potential game changer in terms of them sort of stepping up and proactively addressing the vdr market so yeah watch the space yeah, there's a lot of companies there like Deal Room, Firm Room, Intralinks. Uh, that's one of the really old incumbents. I remember um, when we looked at the space, Intralinks was kind of the number one. And then, yeah, Four Data, Merrill has something. I mean, the problem you alluded to it is like that they're trying to solve with this is if you do a, an like a merger, you know, an acquisition, right? You need to share, if it's a large acquisition, you need to share, you know, gigabytes of data in a secure way with potentially multiple parties if you go into some type of auction-like process. So even if it's just a, a normal, like, you know, exclusive transaction with a buyer, lots and lots of data, you can't email that stuff. You, you can't just open a Google Drive or, you know, something like that. So, so these data rooms have like super granular access, um, 
in a sense, you can you can regulate access super granularly. You can say, okay, the CFO can look at this set of data. You know, the CEO can look at that data uh, set of data. The investment banker can see that you can like watermark certain files. And again, where translation comes in is if you do a cross-border deal, let's say in Japan, China, you know, Indonesia, whatever, Germany, there's lots of files that may need to get translated. And then, you know, you want to be at the source. And that's what trans... Uh, Transperfect obviously found out like 15, 20 years ago when they were really aggressively going into this legal kind of corporate M&A market. So um, why not own the technology outright? At the time, back like, that was like 12 years ago, we partnered up with a company, uh, a VDR provider. We being CLS. Sorry, we. <laughs> yeah, at the time, CLS, right? Uh uh, with a VDR provider, and uh, yeah, it did result in a few deals. I mean, so it was it was worth it, right? And so we funneled some business to them. They funneled some business to us, but obviously, we never owned the actual uh, VDR. Cool, VDR it is. Over to another kind of adjacent industry that we now more regularly cover is transcription captioning. There's two companies that are actually listed on the stock exchange. One is called VIQ Vic. And the other one we've talked uh, a couple of times now on the pod is AI Media based in Australia. So v VIQ is based in, uh, in Toronto and listed on, on that stock market. Uh, quite sizable, kind of the companies are somewhat comparable in terms of their revenue. So like a half year for Vic is like 23, 24 million US. And uh, so yeah, that's what like roughly 50 million a year and uh, AI media revenues are like 60 million Aussie dollars. So actually they're almost the same size. And um, yeah, Vic kind of narrowed their loss. Uh, they had their, their generating losses, um, uh, but they're narrowing the losses. Okay, that's somewhat good, yeah. <laughs> somewhat good. Same kind of for AI media. They also published their full year figures. Um, and they actually published a, an annual report with a lot of kind of, you know, in, information about the industry in there. And uh, they, let me just check the figures here. So they came in, they grew 22% to 60 million Aussie dollars, which I don't know, it's, what is it, roughly 50 million US maybe at the current exchange or maybe a little less. Um, they improved EBITDA from like minus Again, EBIT is like earnings before interest, blah, 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 uh, from minus 8.7 million to now plus 1.1 million. So turning an EBITDA profit, that's, yeah, that's good after like years of losses. Uh, good top line growth, but losing ever more money. And now they're kind of, the, the picture has, uh, has flipped. They are generating 55% gross margin. And uh, in terms of the booking numbers, let me see um, the number of minutes. I think they have something like, like, 21 million minutes that they delivered through uh, one of their solutions. You know, it's like we talk about words, they talk about minutes, 21 million minutes. That sounds like a lot of, uh, that sounds like a lot of, a long time. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a long time, a lot of minutes. <laughs> sounds like a long time, a lot of minutes. Uh, so through another solution, so they have three solutions. Um, one is called Lexi, which is automated. So kind of like, 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 you know, MT in a sense, just drawing the analogy here. The other one is Smart Lexi, which is like a post-edited version of uh, transcription. And then is AI Premium, which is this human, has 99.9 .9 accuracy. It's kind of a service margin uh, and it's their most expensive product. And the other two are like more SaaS, uh, software as a service type of business profile and, you know, margins profile. And obviously you want to go there because that's, um, you know, high profit margins, et cetera. Also, they did like an interesting competitor analysis. So 
They reviewed Verbit, which we talked a lot, like a unicorn, right? Valued over a billion dollars in their most recent funding round. Redbee, 3 Play Media, Rev.com, uh, which also has gotten a ton of funding. A company called Enco, which I'm not familiar with. And Everts, Everts has a kind of 80s style looking logo. So maybe not the most, uh, most uh, I don't know, recent funded startup or something. No, not sure what the analogy could be. So yeah, so the, these companies, they didn't list um, Vic, which is interesting. And just to round off in terms of the share price, because both companies are publicly listed, um, look it up. They, since I think it's like mid 2020 when uh, AI Media uh, IPO, like both companies are down, the stock's down like roughly 75%. So <laughs> quite the downhill trajectory for both with VIX having spiked like uh, 150% and peaked like in, I think early 2021 and now just like lost a lot. So it looks like that bubble has deflated uh, quite uh, quite dramatically. And, uh, but now, you know, on, on, in terms of the business results, both companies are actually on, on more solid footing, you know, starting to turn a profit. And we're, we're certainly gonna uh, investigate this, this topic, this area a little bit more. We should probably have a, a transcription captioning experts on the podcast in the next few weeks. So we'll uh, put that on the agenda. But first we're gonna talk to Yasmin Moslem about the, a super interesting idea in terms of how to train uh, machine translation. And welcome back, everybody, to Slater Pod. So today we're really happy to have Yasmin Muslim on the podcast. So Yasmin is a machine translation researcher at the Adapt Center, where she's working towards her PhD. Hi, Yasmin. Hi, Florian. So where does this podcast find you today? What country, what city? I study, as you said, a PhD at Dublin City University. So I'm in Dublin, Ireland. Nice, Dublin, Ireland. Great city to be. It was there like uh, at the Lock World about four or five years ago and haven't been back since. Uh, so I need to I really go back. One of the centers of uh, localization, of course, right? Of course, yeah. Today, we're going to talk about uh, using those new powerful language models to generate reference text to train machine translation uh, because you and uh, a group of fellow researchers recently published a super interesting research paper uh, titled Domain Specific Text Generation for Machine Translation. But I need to cliffhanger there. Before we dive into this very interesting uh, but complex topic, uh, tell us a bit more about your kind of academic and professional background and your career to date, because you know you have a, a long background in the translation localization industry. Uh, so tell us more about that and how you uh, you know came to where you are now doing a PhD in Dublin. Yeah, I guess my story I like uh, overlapped with the stories of many uh, linguists and translators. I'm someone that love. Uh, uh, that loves language, and um, uh, I studied English literature, and then find that translation um, um, is something very interesting. And I find that, yeah, this is how I wanted to continue my professional uh, uh, career and life. So, obviously, obviously, this comes with opportunities and challenges. But eventually, I uh, uh, ended. Uh, I, I ended up working uh, as a freelance translator and uh, in-house translator for um, uh, several companies. Um, as you can imagine, like um, uh, twenty years ago or fifteen years ago, uh, the idea of computer-aided translation tools, etc., this was like uh, something uh, uh, new, uh, a little bit new. Uh, it was. Um, 
it was uh, like um, not required as today by every freelance translator, but it was uh, mainly adopted in big companies. So the idea here is that at some point and some project, I found that uh, using these tools, they helped me and then it allowed me to apply to certain type of uh, big companies like um, uh, I have this skill uh, so I can apply to these companies and these companies, as you can um, imagine, uh, would provide better uh, better uh, settings like a, a better rate, uh, a better uh, a better deadlines, uh, etc. So here uh, it was um, a technical skill that, uh, that helped me at the point. So. I started uh, telling uh, fellow translators, this is something good, um, and uh, maybe um, we all should improve our skills in this uh, area, and um, this is when I, uh, I started to feel like, uh, okay, uh, uh, I want to learn more about uh, this, and uh, I uh, maybe I became like uh, more, uh, I had more experience in this than maybe the average uh, at some point, uh, uh, there was like a mutual interest in me joining WordPress LLC. Uh, this was uh, uh, these were seven good, uh, seven great years that I spent at WordPress, uh, helping uh, translators, project managers, uh, and uh, localization engineers. And maybe you will say, okay, when, uh, what is the relation of machine translation with this, when machine translation uh, started, etc. cetera. Um, at some point, uh, uh, I consulted for a company, a language service provider uh, in the area of translation, um, in, uh, translation technology in general. And they had uh, previous research in the area of machine translation. So, um, uh, they said, we want to try this. At this point, it was like, uh, okay, well, there are uh, still big players in the area. Why we should have this uh, at a language service provider? Uh, um, they said, we wanted to try to, and see uh, what if we use our own translation memories because we believe that, um, yes, there are big uh, players uh, that have uh, good machine translation, but if we use our own uh, uh, Machine our own translation memories. We might have better quality for uh, for certain clients uh, we have. So, okay, let's try this, and it was just like an experiment. But interestingly, it uh, gave uh, good results because uh, now you have something like uh, domain specific or client specific machine translation. So, uh, you are translating, you are training your system on something that is relevant to. Uh, well, the source text that you are going to later tra translate. So machine translation started to uh, provide relevant uh, translations. So this was where it started with uh, me trying to build rather than to use machine translation because of course machine translation has been there for uh, uh, several years uh, for users. This was in 2014 and yeah. After this, I started consulting for a few uh, companies in uh, this area of machine translation and uh, started to uh, try to expand my knowledge in uh, uh, the technical aspects uh, like um, natural language processing, deep learning, etc. And uh, 
Uh, I had the opportunity to join uh, um, the PhD program at Dublin City University, uh, which was, uh, and it's, it is a good, a good opportunity to also expand my research uh, skill in this area. Fantastic. So really the trajectory from translators, so, you know, know the language, uh, like a very deep language background to like in a business context, and now you're doing the, the research. So uh, that's a great set of qualifications to doing what you're, we're doing now. And so give us the super simple kind of overview of that paper you published, the domain specific text generation for machine translation. And like, what was the the idea and the goal and just kind of the outline for our listeners to to understand this a little bit better before we go into some of the details. As many um, uh, workers in the translation industry uh, understand that uh, machine translation systems usually depend on uh, having uh, translation memories uh, or bilingual uh, text, uh, parallel text. Uh, translated originally by humans, uh, by human translators, and we use uh, these uh, translation memories, a large amount of uh, large amounts of them, uh, and of course the quality must be good. To, we use these to train a machine translation system because at the end of the day, um, uh, current approaches depends on statistics and probability, so they need to see something and a large amount of data to be able to make the relations and. Um, uh, eventually be able to uh, hopefully translate uh, texts in the same language uh, in similar domains uh, with a good quality. Uh, so this is uh, this is originally how um, any machine translation system works. And uh, usually maybe you have uh, a baseline or a generic model like this. Uh, but then when you come to domain-specific machine translation, what we usually do is that we get, for example, um, specialized the translation memories and start to fine-tune or adapt uh, the original generic baseline or these specialized the translation memories. Uh, the problem that we uh, deal with here uh, and it's very common in translation industry is when we don't have domain-specific translation memories to fine-tune a generic system, a generic machine translation system. So, uh, and, and this usually happens, uh, for example, if uh, you get uh, a very big project for a new client or something, but um, of course you can't share the translation memories from other clients because this will be, uh, because uh, intellectual property, etc. So uh, now you don't have, uh, enough data to fine-tune or adapt uh, your baseline model. So this is uh, the problem. Uh, of course, uh, there are different uh, research works in this area. Uh, what we tried to offer in our paper is, uh, is that um, uh, first we use uh, large language models to sort of generate uh, domain-specific text, and the idea here now is that uh, I, I think maybe um, the majority of translators and workers in translation industry heard of large language models, but if uh, they didn't, uh, it's basically another another machine, tra another system, another uh, machine system, automatic system that can generate text. Uh, for example, you give them 
uh, a sentence uh, and um, list or a part of sentence, and they started to complete the story. They basically will build on what you have said. I um, uh, I went to uh, the doctor at uh, a certain street. The, US, the machine will start uh, saying, for example, the street was uh, busy uh, or crowded. The doctor uh, told me so and so. Of course, this is an imaginary story, but at the end of the day, it's similar to what what you have just uh, said. Uh, so th this is uh, what language uh, models specifically that because there are different types of language models specifically models like GPT and uh, Bloom uh, uh, that can generate a continu a continuous text. So we use the list uh, to generate domain specific text based on maybe you have a very tiny uh, translation memory, but not enough to fine tune or adapt your uh, system. And this, this is, uh, of course, in the target uh, language because here the f uh, the flow of uh, language will be seems like it's written by human. Uh, regardless, maybe the information is not accurate, but at the end of the day, you will notice that it's it's linguistically good, depending, of course, on the quality of the language model. After this, now we have the target uh, text, maybe a, a, a huge amount, as much as we need uh, to uh, to train a domain-specific uh, machine translation system. We need, of course, the source side to use back translation with another machine translation model in the other direction to generate the source text. So both here, the synthetic, uh, the source uh, side and the target side are synthetic data, and uh, uh, this uh, target side is generated by language model, and this source side is generated by back translation in the other uh, language direction. And we start using this uh, synthetic or uh, artificial a new uh, domain-specific data set to fine-tune our baseline machine translation system. So, uh, interestingly, uh, the results uh, are very good, very promising, and it seems like uh, this approach uh, works. Of course, it is due to the fact that uh, you have a good quality language model, you have a good quality machine translation system, uh, so now uh, we are reaching the point that synthetic data generated by these systems can be used as uh, um, a method for data augmentation, uh, especially when you don't have enough uh, data. Now, would this have been possible, let's say, two or maybe three years ago? Or is this really kind of built on these large language models that we've heard so much about kind of in the last 12 to 18 months? As you said, yeah, this is very, uh, very uh, quality of uh, these models is very important uh, because, yeah, at the end of the day, if uh, uh, if you have a language model that generates uh, that generates a bad uh, text, we uh, notice here report the text on the uh, the targets. So this is uh, the the outcome that you need to have. Uh, so uh, we need to have uh, a high quality. Of course, uh, uh, large language models started uh, maybe a couple of uh, years before this. Uh, of course, there were other language models, but uh, not with the same uh, uh, scale. This, this, this is important. This, are, this is, yes, as you said, 
this is a huge improvement that allows us to uh, investigate new areas uh, maybe uh, that weren't possible uh, a couple of years ago. And how are you ensuring that the output is somewhat custom, right? You mentioned the example, like, okay, I'm walking to the doctor and I'm on the street. So would you prompt it like with some really obscure kind of in the main prompt, like, you know, I don't know, like in a life sciences context, like a very obscure jargon filled prompt, and then it would take it from there. Or how does that work? Okay. Here we are investigating the two use cases. The first use case is that uh, you have a very tiny uh, translation memory in the domain. So you use the sentences of the target sentences of this small machine translation memory to generate more sentences. So you take only one sentence, like a sentence by sentence from your this tiny translation memory. And uh, for each sentence, uh, the large language model will continue the story and generate um, a couple of uh, uh, more sentences. Uh, so, um, of course, you will split them and create your uh, um, larger translation memory. This idea here, with each sentence here, um, and uh, for example, we used Cheek uh, uh, 119. It's a public health uh, translation memory. Um, so, Cheek uh, 119 was talking about COVID-19 and um, some um, some pieces of advice about uh, uh, how to avoid it, uh, what to do, uh, what kind of uh, um, uh, uh, these uh, medical or health-related um, details. So yeah, when you take a sentence uh, in the medical domain, it will continue uh, more about this. And that's why it's important to hear when uh, you use large language models, because it uh, we are trained on the internet and several ideas and several articles on the internet. Yeah, so this is the first scenario. The second scenario is if you don't have a translation memory at all and you don't want to invest in creating a small uh, translation memory or something, and then you have the source uh, text of your project and you want to translate uh, this source and this source text is, uh, this says, in the medical domain or financial domain, it's in the in certain domain. So you can take uh, a portion of your source text and forward translate it with any um, machine translation model you have, the, your baseline. And obviously, uh, hopefully, it's a good uh, um, uh, a good model. So it's uh, the translation will not be perfect, but it will still have some characteristics of the domain. And then you use this portion to apply the same idea by, but by generating more data uh, with the language uh, model. Of course, the first uh, use case uh, will give you better results uh, when you have a small uh, synthetic uh, translation memory and you started to generate more data on it. But still, the other approach uh, will work if you don't want to invest at all in, in creating a, a small translation. How much synthetic text are you generating? Have you for this particular project? And then, like, does it matter if it's, I don't know, a megabyte, a gigabyte, a terabyte, or like for the outcome and the quality? Okay, this is an important question because maybe you, uh, you would say uh, that uh, uh, if we already have a tiny translation memory, why don't we 
uh, fine-tune the system uh, or directly on this tiny uh, translation memory. The thing is when you fine-tune uh, baseline, uh, you have a large uh, baseline machine translation um, uh, system or model and you want to fine-tune it, you need um, enough data for this. You can't just have, uh, of course, uh, there are research about uh, fine-tuning in tiny um, uh, translation memories, but the best uh, results will happen when you have, for example, uh, quarter, when you have, for example, quarter, uh, quarter thousand um, uh, sentences, uh, like uh, uh, two uh, hundred thousand or three hundred thousand, and you start fine tuning your uh, baseline uh, machine translation system on them. But when you're actually generating the synthetic text, like not like how much does it matter how much you generate? Because you, you you mentioned in the paper like you can essentially generate it generate unlimited amounts. You can generate unlimited text, but in here we we generated like uh, uh, something like a quarter million, like uh, two uh, yeah, so two hundred uh, two hundred thousand or three hundred thousand, something in this range, and um, uh, we applied mixed fine tuning, which means we extracted uh, a, a portion of the original uh, generic data set, like for example ten times or nine times uh, this. Uh, uh, domain specific, and we applied some sort of, uh, uh, of mixing and weights to make them like similar, like taking, for example, nine sentences from the small in domain and one sentence from the generic uh, data set. So to make them like virtually equal, we aren't equal, but uh, with weights, with having a higher weight for the smaller data set. Uh, and mixing, make this mix, uh, you will get a baseline, you will get a domain specific, a fine tuned model for your uh, domain. Yeah. Just to geek out on this a little bit. So, but would it matter if you did 10x or 100x more than those 250, like two and a half million or 25 million? Would that have a, an influence on the quality, or you think at some point you just hit diminishing returns and it doesn't really matter anymore? This is an important question. And, um, um, there are, of course, here uh, some uh, criteria re regarding also efficiency because sometimes when uh, this is a quality, this is a quality that you need. Um, you just stop here because um, you you don't want to uh, use uh, extra resources. But um, um, I I saw some colleagues who started already uh, applying this approach and they said, okay, fine, we will use more than this and of course when you use more than this uh, you can uh, you can achieve better quality but uh, at some point you wouldn't really uh, need too much data so maybe something like half million uh, maybe something like uh, maybe maximum million i wouldn't really uh, apply uh, because uh, there is another point here your generic uh, your generic data set this also depends on the diversity of generic data set because here we, we are uh, maybe talking about the scale of language service providers. But if we go for a larger scale, like for example, uh, big tech companies, maybe they will have uh, different, like bigger uh, generic data sets and hence they can, of course, uh, 
uh, use a bigger uh, end domain uh, because it uh, depends on the settings. But generally speaking, in the, in the settings that we usually apply in a language service provider, I would say that starting from quarter million to something like million in domain data set is, is just enough. Uh, as I said, um, of course, to make the process as efficient as uh, possible. Yeah, you're you're right. I remember from my LSP days, like when it hits half a million, seven hundred thousand, it starts to become really heavy, and like there's a lot of like you know not great data in it anymore. So this seems to be like a natural kind of threshold, maybe half a million. Um, so typically, when we look at all these um, machine translation research papers. They're more geared, it seems, towards like solving relatively niche research problems or like super broad things. But this, what you're presenting is, to me, it seems extremely applicable to the day-to-day -day operation of a, of a translation company, of an LSP. Is that, did you choose and lead this project because of your background in the industry or like how did this come about, the interest? First of all, it's uh, it's important to highlight that research papers, as you can imagine, depend on each other. So, uh, yeah, um, um, yeah, I understand. Of course, as you uh, said, there are multiple directions, like uh, multiple types of uh, machine. Uh, sorry, uh, general research papers, whether they are about architecture, hardware, um, data ethics. Uh, 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 process efficiency uh, at the end of the day um, you need all this to con to complete the, the process the final process and uh, um, we have like uh, something like seven pages of references that uh, we we wouldn't be able to uh, make our our uh, paper and experiment and uh, uh, conduct our experiments without depending on uh, on this but i i understand your point of course uh, the uh, research papers is also a type of content and just as any type of content they have different types of audience uh, right so uh, yes there are of course uh, some papers that tend to be more applicable in in certain directions like you take this paper and apply uh, for example as a language service provider um yes of course there is this kind of paper obviously they depend on previous research um and of course yes uh, uh, my my background of course uh, maybe um have uh, or definitely have um influence on my uh, selections because also i have uh, still contacts in my in the translation industry i hear uh, I listen to their problems, I try to figure out solutions, maybe something that will end up um, in a new approach, uh, uh, or I recommend something um, um, different. So yeah, definitely, of course, my background in the transition industry uh, influence, uh, influence my research decisions as well. Let's stay on this kind of real-life angle here. So do you see this getting in a sense implemented or productized relatively quickly or do you feel there's a lot more things that are missing currently or like let's say i'm running a 10 million dollar revenue language service provider Sh should i like you know send you an email and like make sure that i can get this uh, in production as soon as possible or how far is it from like um again being deployed like in day to day there are two uh, two aspects here uh, the first aspect is that yeah, of course, uh, this can be uh, applied, and there are uh, uh, there are already uh, some colleagues in 
language service providers who started applying this approach and sending me, as you said, sending me an email asking the questions and, of course, <laughs> fine-tuning or adjusting the process because, of course, uh, you might have slightly different use cases and start experimenting with different things and asking the questions, making sure that it's this well. They already got uh, very interesting uh, results. Some of them not only applied it when they don't have uh, uh, any uh, machine translation memory, uh, any translation memory, or any uh, or a small one, but they already tried to say, okay, I find I have a translation memory, and I will fine tune on, the, on it. But can I make it even a little bit uh, bigger with sensitive data? So uh, mix this with this, and they already also managed to get good results. So yes, this approach is uh, applicable and you can also adapt it a little bit uh, just, uh, on your um, use cases. Of course, here we have like uh, high level use cases, but maybe your uh, exact use cases will be a little bit different. Uh, um, uh, this is one thing. Yeah, it, uh, it can be applied directly and it's already applied. Uh, this, this is something make me happy, of course. Uh, the other, yeah, the other aspect is should every because this is some importance. Should every language service provider go now and build a machine translation memory in a machine translation system in general or not? This is important important aspect I'd like to mention. Of course, not uh, not uh, every language service provider should do this uh, themselves because nowadays um, this this is completely different than, for example. Um, 20 years ago, there, uh, nowadays there are at least 100 companies that offer machine translation services and they expect, for example, language service providers to maybe invest in this. So maybe this is a good option for some language service providers, right? And maybe other language, uh, uh, language service providers would see, no, for some reason, for whatever reason, logistic reason, financial reason, no, they wanted to invest in their own uh, machine translation systems. So maybe the second point is a little bit uh, not a direct uh, answer to your question, but it's, uh, it's worth men mentioning that um, uh, we aren't uh, like uh, saying that every language service provider should um, adopt the whatever uh, approaches. Uh, offered by the research and they must apply this themselves. So they must, of course, investigate the options that we have nowadays and try to find the best thing uh, to their own uh, company. Yeah, but it could also be a feature, right, for these, I don't know, maybe 20, 30 kind of standalone machine translation companies They could, uh, instead of like maybe, I mean, you can already do like custom terminology, et cetera, but if, you, if there's like a feature like, hey, tra domain training, and you can just drop a few prompts and then, well, it, you know, quality goes up. Uh, I'm sure it's not easy to build, but it's maybe something that you consider. Cause I agree with you. Not every LSP needs to build their own proprietary machine translation system. That's uh, that's probably too much R and D for a service company. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. The, this, this could be a, um, a feature because, uh, let's agree that data is money and, uh, and, um, we have, uh, we have limited data compared to. Uh, the huge amount of uh, the huge amount of technology, or that we have nowadays, we still have limited data, and data is very and just as hardware. Yes, we have expensive hardware and expensive data, and uh, these are maybe uh, the two main uh, factors nowadays that we need to uh, solve in uh, in the area of machine translation research. So 
Uh, moving one step uh, towards uh, uh, solving the uh, the, uh, um, the idea of uh, um, limited uh, data is is something definitely. Yeah. Now, maybe a slightly, I'm not sure if it's controversial in research, but like your, your paper cites blue, that uh, quality metric, which we like even five years ago uh, wrote a piece at Slater.com about like that it's becoming not obsolete, but like that it's basically quite contentious. Like, like what's your general take on blue and its relevance today and maybe like in five years from now when, you know, things have gotten even better? In our paper, we uh, used four automatic uh, metrics and... Uh... Uh, apart from human evaluation, we used blue, we used the uh, car if uh, or character if uh, plus plus, we used the uh, two. We used also comets. Uh, these uh, two or three or automatic metrics uh, they are different in how we handle this. And the, three, the first three uh, are still uh, depending on a similar approach, except that um one depends uh, on character which is character f plus plus and uh, one depends on uh world which is uh two but comet also depends on a different concept which is semantic uh semantic evaluation which means we don't hear like uh, count how much the reference is similar based on the exact word or the exact character, but also the meaning. Maybe the translation, of course, translation can use different words, different uh, uh, order as well. So here, uh, uh, Comet uh, uses semantic evaluation. The meaning, if, if the meaning is uh, a little bit similar, uh, it will uh, be able to uh, say okay, still the translation is good. The majority uh, uh, of uh, of research nowadays in the in in creating a new mach machine translation evaluation uh, metrics uh, move in this direction, and not, we don't need more uh, very uh, exact evaluation. We rather need more semantic uh, metrics. Why do we still use blue? It's because we need, of course, to um, compare our results of, uh, with other uh, papers because, as you can imagine, uh, advancement in machine transition is very, very um, fast. So, uh, actually, uh, the papers that we compare our approach to, maybe uh, it would be just a couple of years ago. We can't discard this completely. Uh, until the moment, uh, companies, academia, use blue. So we still use blue, but nowadays, uh, even in uh, if you have a, a reviewer for your uh, paper, they will tell you, no, blue is not enough. You can't just uh, publish a paper with blue. Uh, uh, you have to add uh, other metrics uh, because uh, uh, this will uh, like um, make sure that uh, your results are valid also. And most importantly, human evaluation. We apply the human evaluation uh, because um, this is, um, at the end of the day, uh, language is about what and about how uh, it's perceived. So uh, human evaluation uh, shows you some interesting results. Some, sometimes uh, um, they 
uh, correlate with your automatic evaluation metrics. Sometimes they say, no, actually, multiple translations can be okay, especially in languages. Here we are talking, for example, about the medical domain. So everyone most likely writes in English and translates to other languages. So it's very common to find uh, multiple terms in Arabic or Spanish for the same term in English. So uh, if you apply something like blue, this will not take it as a correct translation, but human evaluation might say that this is um, okay. So basically, to answer your question, we have to continue using Blue for some time to, to be able to compare our results, but we have to integrate our metrics as well, uh, other metrics as well, whether they are semantic automatic metrics and, of course, human evaluation. Got it. So to, uh, to round off, like, what's your advice for anybody listening here who's in a you know, core kind of linguistic career, translation, reviewer, et cetera, and maybe will be interested in exploring a more technical role, right? What you're doing now. Basically, it's important to understand, all of us understand that whether you start from a linguistic background, a business background, a, tec a technical background like software or mathematical background, at the end of the day, uh, machine translation is an interdisciplinary field. It's uh, an interdisciplinary area, which means you have to get a little bit from each uh, field or discipline. Uh, so basically, uh, based on how much you get deeper in certain discipline and uh, the final, how you mix these components uh, together, uh, this will end up how are you work on machine translation uh, business, machine translation evaluation, machine translation, uh, the technical part of the machine translation. And when you ask about um, um, the technicality of machine translation, okay, this is, uh, this is uh, something also, uh, again, it's not like um, everyone should go and do exactly this, right? Okay, so there are different rules in machine translation because this is important. Some people would say, I don't know how to uh, write code, for example, so I can't work in. No, maybe you like marketing, maybe you like um, uh, uh, evaluation, maybe you like um, uh, something linguistic. Now, uh, rules in machine translation and in deep learning in general um, aren't well defined, but there are like uh, an endless of uh, rules in the area. When it comes to technicality, um, maybe concentrating on uh, aspects like, for example, uh, Python programming. This is now the language, uh, the programming of every um, every natural language processing. When you start, at least, uh, of course, uh, later you can uh, have other programming languages. But Python programming is important. Looking into a very important uh, libraries about natural language uh, processing, NLTK, uh, this kind of stuff. Understanding that um, spiral learning is important. Uh, here, uh, yeah, spiral learning is important. So it's not like a stop and um, you have to finalize this. No, move and try to improve as you go because uh, as you mentioned, we don't know what will happen tomorrow. Maybe we will have another technology that improves things and, and it changes things. Um, another thing that I highly recommend, which is paper reading, uh, uh, join some groups that read papers, read, read, read recent papers, 
maybe this is something that is underestimated, but it's important. And it's not really, you, 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 we don't really have to understand every paper, no, but just getting some concept from each paper, and as I'm, as I'm saying, it's a spiral learning process. Uh, um, yeah, uh, joining some group that reads papers, the recent papers, and uh, popular papers, I, I highly recommend anyone who wants to uh, get into um, the area of machine translation, regardless of which role they wanted to have to join some reading uh, group, this will be very useful. Thank you so much, Yasmin. That was super interesting, and uh, I hope people go and uh, download the paper. It's free. So uh, thanks again for taking the time today. Thank you very much, Florian, for your time today. And yeah, this was a very interesting talk. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah.